Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi lads, thanks for tuning into the podcast again. Don't forget to like and subscribe and head over to the Patreon to contribute and help us out. Thanks a million and enjoy the podcast. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Two Nari's podcast. As always, I am joined by my good friend Timmy Lang. Hi everyone. My name is James Zennard. My cousin Rowan is on the decks. Hi Rowan. Hello. Um, and this week we have a dub because the restrictions are lifted. We can travel into county. So down from Dublin on the train is Mr Mick Finnegan. That's the crack Mick. Oh, the crack's 90, lads. The crack <laughs> is 90. Yeah, it's good to be here, you know. It's like going on my holidays, getting the train there earlier on today, you know, just kind of cabin fever, just kind of, you could only go, what's a 5k, and then it was like, you could only stay in Richard County, and then I was on the train, I felt like Richard Kimball, you know what I mean, yeah. I was just legging it. Like, <laughs> freedom! I know, yeah, and as much as we love cock people, we were getting sick of cock people, weren't we? <laughs> but it's great to have you on. Um, oh, thanks, thanks for having me. No, I'm delighted to have you on. So, for the people that don't know you, who are you and where are you from? Yeah, well, I'm from Dublin, grew up in the inner city. Uh, what part? Uh, Dolph- uh, well, bet- between Denor Avenue and Dolphins Barn, you know, we kind of knocked around Crumlin, which is like the flats. And uh, love growing up there was a bit mad, you know, it was just, you know, people just didn't care, you know, it was real kind of, what are you looking at, you know, it's like, um, but you know, I loved, I loved kind of growing up there and it was a great kind of, uh, you know, great experience, real sense of community growing up and, you know, in the inner city, people look out for each other and that type of thing. And yeah, um, yeah you know. Big family. Yeah, well, I'm the, I'm the oldest of four. My ma is the, I think she's the oldest of like 16. Jeez. Fucking hell. Yeah, big family, fucking yeah. Loads of, like the, mm. Yeah, the O'Sheas. Yeah. Like, my ma raised them all, so like they're like all kids. Because mm. my granny and granddad would have went to work. Yeah. So, um. So there's a bit of corking, yeah, is there? There's a bit of, do you know what they're at? Well, Kerry. Oh, is that what Yeah, the O'Sheas, yeah. yeah Apparently, yeah, yeah. I was doing a bit of research on it. And they were fishermen off the West Coast and all this jazz. And they came up to Dublin to work on the docks. To kind of manage the ducks and all that type mm-hmm. of thing. And my great great granddad, yeah, Thomas O'Shea. Thomas, there's an Irish name, and lads. Like, and like proper, <laughs> and there's a picture of him. And he just looks, no joke, like everyone's like, geez, that looks a bit like him. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas O'Shea is the. If I was 50, I'm like, I'm looking like, oh, a big fat red cheese on the You know, a big fisherman's hat. <laughs> Had he red hair as well? Yeah, they all Re- really? Red, yeah, yeah, red hair or red. My has red hair. Most of my aunties, I think, yeah. have uh, red hair. Yeah. Um, some of the uncles would have had red hair as well, you know. And um, yeah, it was a big, big family. Yeah, like, the, like it was an interesting family, mm-hmm. you know. And I think, you know, because of my own circumstances, it probably wouldn't be fair to kind of discuss that any further. Of course, Just purely because, yeah, you know. They're not here to defend themselves, mm. and you know it's easy to kind of, 
you know, yeah. slag people off that are dead or, yeah. you know, or people 100%. that make poor lifestyle choices. We're only interested know. in your story. Yeah. Anyway, to be honest. Well, it's just, we just yeah. get a bit of context. Yeah. You know, you're from Dublin 8, is it? Grew up in the inner city, Dublin 8, yeah. yeah um, uh, big family. What Dub- was it like? Dublin 8, Dublin 12, big family. What was it like in school? Ah, yeah, it was like, it was a fucking, I was always messing. No, I wasn't like a bully. Yeah. I was just like. Class like, clown? Pretty much, yeah. Just always mm. taking the piss, not taking things seriously. Mm. You're in good Probably company. still a bit like that, you know what I mean? Like, You're in good company, <laughs> or any other yeah. class clown yeah. thing. Look, I used to sit in the back of the glass yeah. and be like, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, purposely, like, doing things like, um, like, I used to do this thing where I was, uh, I could do this whistling, but really kind of low pitch, and I used to drive the teacher, I'm mental. I'd be like, I'd be having stitches like all that. And then I used to get like kicked out and suspended detention. And then um different I was in different skills in you know, I had the I always joke about it, but uh, you know, I left you to kind of creative differences. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like an artist would leave an agent. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. But now I was fucked out, like I was, went to like a couple of skills in Crumlin, then I ended up with skill went then the school that kind of knocked a bit of shape into me was a school in Ballyferma, which is like on the, it's in Dublin West, kind of on the out, not far from town, but not in the inner city. And I used to get the 18 bus from Crumlin to Ballyer. And you're on the bus for about 40, 50 minutes, and I'm not from the area. So I was like getting off the bus and I'd be running yeah. to the class or to, to the school because the kids would be fucking chatting. Who's the fucking game? Get him! And I'd be like, Trying to run, fucking beside me. It was about 20 stand when I was fucking two. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. like trying to barrel down the road and I used to always get the shit kicked out of me because I wasn't from the area. And then mm. you end up kind of fighting and then eventually when you keep fighting them back, they leave you alone and then they're like, yeah. oh, well, you're one of us now. Yeah. You're still a prick though. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, no, it was good. Like, you know, I enjoyed kind of the skill because that skill kind of gave me, being honest with you, kind of probably gave me a bit of kind of aspirations you know because it was the first place I kind of uh, where teachers were encouraging you mm-hmm. you know like um, I remember like doing like the junior state there and the history teacher Miss Leonard um, good name yeah <laughs> any probably relation, relation. <laughs> probably all the Leonard's are related to our dubs yeah so mm-hmm. like I was there anyway and she was like you should think about doing higher level history and I was like, nah, you're grand, like, and whatever. And I did it. Mm. You know, she really pushed me, really, mm. to and I, I always remember that. You know, not just settling for for all that. And then, you know, kind of, me school, me school, and then kind of took a bit of a nose dive because he ended up on the streets. So, do you know, around this time, would it be fair to say Dolphin's Barn had its challenges in that area in terms of drug use and... Oh, massive, yeah. Like, there was a big kind of heroin... Ivy drug use kind of you know I remember vividly kind of stepping over syringes going down the stairs in the flats you know and you know people were injecting or smoking quite a lot of drugs at the mm. time because the whole area was just flooded uh, with, 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 with heroin mm. and you know you experience it and you're looking at it and you think Jesus this is and even all members of my own family you know my little brother passed away uh, three and a half years ago before he was on in December, from a heroin overdose. Sorry, in a homeless hostel in in Dublin, you know. It's sad, isn't it? Oh, it's heartbreaking, you know. But I never really knew him, you know, mm. because I was out of a family home at quite a young age. So for me, it was kind of like, 
I was devastated that I never got to know my brother as a man. Yeah. That makes sense. That I never got to sit down and have a point with him or chat to him about relationships or, you know, maybe help him out and that type of thing. You know, I never knew him as a, as an adult. And, um, the thing is as well, because he was on drugs and like he probably never got the chance to be a man. You know, like when you think about it, when somebody is on drugs, they're not who they really are, you know. Um, and when that person dies, not only, not, not as just who they are, but everything they could have ever been, do you know what I mean? Every, it, yeah. Like every, any potential, let's say, for example, if I died when I was 27, do you know, mm. there'd be no podcast, there'd be no master's degrees and PhDs mm. or jobs or wives or mm. you know, all these, yeah. all the potential that you have that you're doing, Timmy, Rowan, everything that you have ahead of you dies with you, you know, so it's just... Mm. It's just so tragic when it's so young, isn't it? Oh, it's heartbreaking, you know. I remember kind of, um, you know, turning up to the funeral and it was just absolutely devastating. Yeah. You know, the, and even going back to where I'm from, you see the same people wearing the same clothes, sitting in the same spots, doing the same things, talking about the same shit. Mm. And it's just like, you know, devastating. Mm. Really is kind of just heartbreaking. Keep saying that a lot, but it was. But it's the truth. Yeah, you're speaking the truth mm. because it's people in these areas don't have that awareness to know that you can actually get out of there. But you need a, a certain amount of awareness, and sometimes that awareness comes from a rock bottom, from drug abuse, you know, or some other situation. You know, so that's how it actually works. You need that little glimpse of awareness. If you're not. Or, if, or even if you're brought out of that environment for a certain amount of time and you see different people living a different life, that shows you that you there is a different life then as well. But if you're in the norm, your norm, which is drug abuse, violence, yeah. and all these different areas, you're, you're not going to know anything else. No, you're not. And like I remember, like, uh, you know, when I got off the streets, you know, and I went to London, I was working over in London and... <laughs> You know, I was living with these two lads and they were like, one was a South African guy and one was from New Zealand. And, you know, and I was like from the, I was still wearing tracksuits and Air Max and thinking I was like fucking deadly. But I was thinking, actually, no one in London dresses like this. And I look, I look like I'm still 15. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were taking the piss out of me because I was like, so I thought, well, I'm wearing what, what I would normally wear anywhere. Yeah. Um, and the boys were like, no, we have to take you shopping, come on. And they would take me around to buy chinos, deck shoes, shorts. Mm. And I hadn't a fuck, I hadn't a clue about that stuff. Yeah. Did not have a clue about like, you know, wearing, I'd say big clothes, mm. but like wearing clothing that was appropriate for the workforce. Yeah. You know, I was still kind of not trapped in it, but I was still kind of in that kind of, sure, I'm grand, I'm only walking uh, doing this. I remember when I was uh, in our very early recovery, not long out of um, treatment, and I was doing a C scheme in an office building, you know. But I came in one day, out of hours, like I wasn't working, I came in to go to HR for something. I was wearing a tracksuit and a pair of Air Max, like what John talking about. No, still the old kind of mentality, you know. Mm. And uh, when the staff in there says, oh, you're going to the gym? And I was like, going to the gym? Because they associate this clothes are going to the gym. So, no, this is what I wear all the time. Because <laughs> so afterwards, I was thinking, yeah, maybe it's time to grow up the small bit. You know? <laughs> it does It does happen. Like, I made an early recovery as well. You know, I, I said, I'm not wearing the tracksuit and the runners anymore. Mm. My wife was looking at me and saying, Jesus Christ, I have a bag of tracksuits, brand new tracksuits. They are runners for you, like, you know, I know you're telling us that you're not wearing them anymore. 
And the yeah. thing is, the tracksuits weren't cheap. No, they're like two hundred quid a pop. Oh, yeah, and the, the shoes. And the trainers are talking like yeah. wooden or on your feet for less than ninety quid. Yeah, but you know what? You know what's what's probably a bit annoying about all that is, in our culture, this is the height of fashion. But that culture does look down on is less than when you're in other contexts like yeah. more, more middle class they look at you and they see the tracksuit and the amax and it's a label over your head yeah. and then when you're in a, when you're in an environment like that where you're the only one you start to feel a bit embarrassed and a bit ashamed yeah. and then before you know it you're wearing chinos and fucking decks yeah. and shorts that you wouldn't dream of wearing yeah. but you just don't want to stand out mm. do you know do you want to tell us a little bit about, we go back to, yeah. you, you said that you were on the streets at a young age. Yeah. How young? And did, did you finish school early? Or? Yeah, like, I think it was just, you know, there was, there was a breakdown in the family home um, due to kind of, I'll be honest, I was abused as a kid. And it's, you know, when I, was, I joined the, Jane, the John's Ambulance to kind of get a bit of identity. And What's the, the John's Ambulance? John's Ambulance is like a forced aid organisation. It's a national organisation that provides forced aid. They'd be at the soccer matches All and stuff. the soccer matches yeah. and, and uh, you know, Funderland, the Aviva, yeah. uh, Crow Park, Turner's Cross probably. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They'd be there providing forced aid pretty much free of charge for the community. And I joined because I wanted to learn a new skill and I thought maybe this could, I could get a job out of it. I could be a paramedic. You know, deep down I wanted to be a guard, but if I said that out loud, I would have got the head kicked off. <laughs> I want to be a guard. <laughs> yeah. you know what, I mean? what age were you then? Oh, when I joined the John Zamblins, I was about 12. Yeah. Yeah, and then the guy who ran the unit that I joined in the inner city, he was kind of, he was a predator. Yeah. You know, and he was targeting kids from socioeconomically deprived areas. Because if a kid from that area opened their mouth... They're not. They're less likely to believe than someone from, you know, somewhere that's more affluent. You know, mm. and for years this guy was just fucking grooming me. You know, sexualizing the first day training, and t- up until a point, you know, when I was a bit older, he he raped me. Okay. And I remember going home fucking terrified, shitting myself like fucking bleeding, and mm. you know, I remember going out to my mum and asking for a tub of pseudo cream, and she was like, "What do you want that for?" And I was like, "Shut your fuck." Like I lost it with my mom. What age were you at that time? I was about maybe 15, 16, yeah. Like, and then, probably younger actually, yeah, I don't know. Couldn't give you an exact, yeah, about 15 maybe, 15 mm. or 16. And I remember just kind of going through all that. And I was just so frightened of everything. And then I just shut up shop. I didn't want to let anybody in because the people I trusted let me down. You know, I was rejected by my family. The John Zamblins didn't want to know. Like, I spent fucking years on the street sleeping rough, you know. Um, like, wait, wait, did you ever get caught up in the heroin scene when you were on the streets? No, no, I didn't. That's mad. Like, cause yeah, because it's a pure pain relief. Massively. You know I mean? So, I, you know, the only thing I ever did that was a bit, like, from a substance misuse perspective, um, would be probably just gargle, mm. drink, you know, with a, the odd time. It was really bad at drink, but I wasn't a street drinker. But you didn't end up in addiction. No, that's unbelievable, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I didn't. And I was just because I was too busy. <laughs> I remember like messing and like fucking robbing tourists. Like, do you want me to take your picture? Yeah. Fucking <laughs> legging away, clean. I remember I got the shit kicked down with me. Fucking, like, we basically stole this camera off of what was the fucking human Terminator from America, and I thought deadly on my way. And the fucker must have been in the U.S. Marines or something. He was launching over cars and walls, and I thought, oh, I'd be gone. He caught fucking battered me. He was like, you know, and as he hit me, and I was like, I was like, fifteen or something. He went, 
America! Wow! Und dann kommt das Kamera vor. Und ich bin so schlimm. Du bist dann noch ein Jahr da. Ich bin dann noch ein Jahr da. Ich bin dann noch ein You knew blood, that there. Yeah. black oil, blood everywhere, fucking crazy. Yeah. But um, you know, I never, really, I never ended up in addiction or yeah. even like involved in kind of anything, kind of criminality or anything like that. Because I didn't trust anybody, and I think you need to kind of. I think a lot of in Dublin, especially a lot of the lads would have been would have been using in groups or in pairs, mm. or they would have been going scoring together and all that. And I was just a bit of a fucking loner because I wasn't, mm. I, I'd nothing to relate. To anybody, you know, because I was under 18, I wasn't in and out of, you know, any any prisons or anything like that. So even when you're sitting there and lads and you go, like, oh yeah, I was on that wing and I was locked up for there. Mm. They sent me to Limerick and then Cork and then I got the shit kicked out of me in Cork because I'm from Dublin. Yeah. And then I ended up back up in the, in the Joy and then they sent me to Weefield and all. And, like, and I'm there like that, yeah, right, yeah. And I, I couldn't. Relate, like. Couldn't relate, didn't know it. Like, mm. I think I'm the only male in my immediate family that wasn't in jail. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Now, I spent, you know, the odd night or weekend in a cell. But what was your life like when you were on the streets if you weren't involved in the criminality or the drugs? Lonely. Yeah, I can't yeah Lonely, pure lonely. And, you know, for me, I would have just, as a, you know, growing up and just spending time just on my own sitting there. You know, I used to kind of hide in the bush in Stephen's Green and, mm. you know, or I'd end up sleeping somewhere else, get moved on from there and then I'd get lifted by the cops because I was a bit cheeky. You know, they'd be like, I'm directing you in a section, whatever. To do. Mm. I'm directing you to fuck off. And then you're getting, <laughs> then you're getting the head kicked off you again and anointing the cell and then you get fined and, um, and then you're back out on the streets and you're walking around and it's quite transient, mm. you know, accessing or navigating homeless services in Dublin because... You're ringing up the free phone number, the homeless free phone, for looking for a bed. If you're lucky, you'll get into like Santa Maria. But you're going into a room, probably about the same size as this room here, and there's like 10 bunk beds. Mm. And you're just pick a, yeah. pick a bed, and that's it. Do, do, I, do you know what I'm <coughs> thinking here in my mind? And I'm saying, how does somebody live on the streets, you know, as you did, and, do you know, cope with with all the feelings and emotions of it, you know, without a substance, you know, mm. you know it's it, it, like, I suppose everything that happened, you can probably remember, and I'd say you must have saw some mad fucking situations, shit happening on the streets, like. Yeah, like, I got the shit kicked down me a few yeah. times, I've been stabbed, I've been fucking, do you know what I mean? Like, um, my face is covered in scars, because yeah. I was cheeky, I never backed down from anybody, I couldn't, I'll be honest, I wasn't the best fighter, but I wouldn't, not in a million years, back down, back mm. down, and I'd be very much, right then, come on, and they'd be taking on like five blokes, and I'd be getting yeah. absolute mm. granny knocked out of me. And like, mm. you know, and then like eventually, like the lads, like if, some of them would leave you alone, but then some of them would pray on you. Mm. You know, they'd be like, oh, there's a young fella. Mm. You know, I'm going to take his sleeping bag. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Or I'm going to take his trainers. And yeah, I remember like tying my trainers going to sleep, mm. you know, together. So that if someone did try and take them when I was sleeping, that they wouldn't be able to get them. You know, mm. without me kind of noticing or waking me up. It's just kind of, it was quite sad. It was very lonely. And I was, yeah. you know, I think it was difficult, yeah. you know, very, very difficult. Um, How long were you in the St. John's Ambulance for? Oh, nearly 10 years, yeah. As a, so were you homeless when you were in the. Yeah, towards the end, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was mad because like, I was. I remember um, reporting to the John's Ambulance mm. what happened to me. And then. Um, the child protection officer 
rang rings me on her phone and she's like, Tell me what happened. Didn't have the decency to even meet me. And then the um the assistant commissioner, he met me in a hotel, told me if I kept my mouth shut. Um a commissioner to the guard the, the, the assistant commissioner to the John's ambulance oh, oh, the same kind of rank and structure as the guards yeah. and um, he, he, all, he showed me an envelope full of cash and he said if I kept my mouth shut that'll be there for you every month and I was like fuck you mm. and I lost it he was in a hotel and he, he actually met me brought me to the hotel sat in the hotel I flipped the table and everything got fucking dragged out by security do you know what I mean and then and even now, like like it, within the organisation, people are very much aware of that incident because it was talked about mm. amongst everybody. And no one was really willing to accept what happened. You know, they weren't willing to accept that there was a systemic um, issue of, short, you know, safeguarding because like, there was no one that really wanted to kind of challenge the senior leadership team uh, within that organisation. Do you know your abuser? Was he senior? One of one of the one of the top dogs, yeah. Like he was responsible for the first aid at Lansdowne Road. And had he access to multiple children? Yeah, and community groups. I don't know whether you saw uh, Limber Wan in the in the Shannon there last week or the week before. Yeah. And she gets up and turns out that he was also using his position to access other community groups. So when the John Zamlands wasn't meeting, he was down there in the guise of the John Zamlands providing support. But what he was doing, he was probably looking to groom. And we don't, that's very much at the early stages. And I think that will probably be uh, explored by the, uh, the the inquiry that's being led by Dr. Jeffrey Shannon. Have you met any of any other victims of his? Yeah. Similar stories? Yeah. Older than me. When did it end? What age? Oh, I think it was about 16 when it ended. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 16, maybe. You know, when you're like, you're a big man. Um, do you know like when you're 15, 16 is it just the fear he has over you that like it goes on that no he, but he, he, he like, like he violently like restrained you yeah face down into into a pillow fucking he tried to get me into a room while he foolishly thought he needed something there I was trying to help and yeah pin me down beat the shit out of me like actually fucking like digging me you know as he was uh, you know, fucking penetrating me, and, and I just fucking couldn't believe. It. I was I was crying into this pillow, yeah, and then hell. he fucking then decided that it was like nothing happened. Right, come on now, I'll get you home. And I sat there in the fucking ambulance with him, free for froze, froze. Like, and the, the big, the mad thing about all this is the John's ambulance actually photoshopped them out of their photos. Does like the, 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 they did a one hundred year uh, celebration at the John's Ambulance in Ireland, mm. and it was a picture of all the senior officers, and he's photoshopped out of it. Did you, did you ever get an apology from Saint John's Ambulance? No, not a proper one. No, I've had people reach out to me, former members, current server members. We're sorry that happened to you, but not an official apology. You mm. know, they've not they've not made any effort to. You know, engage with the victims. They've not made any effort to um, provide the victims with any support. Did you? Did you ever approach him as an adult? Yeah, I got arrested outside his house. Go oh, yeah. yeah. away. <laughs> fucking lost it. I can imagine. Fucking <clears throat> lost it. Yeah, I tried to kick his door in. Where is he now? 
still at home, still in the scaff, still in the I, same place, still he's, alive. He's probably late eighties, early nineties now. I think, yeah, he'd be about ninety. I think. But like Tusa did an investigation into him, and like Tusa's investigations are almost forensic because you know what they're like. They don't like to make decisions because they don't want to be wrong and they don't want to open themselves up for litigation. Them and um, they did a retrospective investigation into him uh, for what I went through, and that went on for years. And then in November last year, after he appealed it, the allegations against him were founded. Mm. You know? And tell me this, with him being so old, right, if he died in the morning, would the case be stopped at that? Or, or no. Would St. John's no, ambulance still be... No, I think if he died in the morning, then every newspaper in the country would write about it, because then they could name him. Okay. Um, I'm very lucky that the, 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 the journalist Jack Power has been quite um, proactive in highlighting this case. Well done, Jack. Yeah, mm. like massive, like, you know, really kind of highlighting it to the point where we've we've uncovered more stuff mm. that will be out in the press in a couple of days. And it's crazy. You know, there really was a systemic issue of, you know, child sexual abuse. And there was a cover-up within the organisation. Do you know when you say systemic, does that mean that there was multiple people within the organisation? Yeah. yeah, there was more than one. Yeah. More than one. There was, I asked something, I know you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but I watched um, a podcast, you know James English, he's, has a, he's a Scottish guy, he has a very good podcast mm-hmm. actually. We had this gangster fella and he's a, a kind of an entrepreneur, no? his name is Lambo, I think his name is, this is his nickname. Aaron Lamb. Yeah, yes. he has this scar on his face. On his face. Mm-hmm. He was speaking about, he had similar experience yourself, he was raped and it led to kind of complications in his adulthood in terms of going to the toilet and not being able to hold and stuff like that. Is that is that a thing? Is that common for men who've been raped as children to have those issues later? Well, I can only life? comment on myself. So yes, I, you know, do have problems. You know, I've had, I've had a couple of operations, mm. you know, on my back passage to help me basically not shit the bed. That's the only way I can put yeah. it. You know, um, where, like, you know, there were issues around the comments. There's still issues around that. Mm. You know, but I didn't know there was anything wrong with me until I ended up in a hospital in England with sepsis. You know, I was in a heap and then they were checking me out and then they were looking at why is this there and why, and then Tony had a massive infection in my back passage where they actually had to remove some tissue. Um, because it was a massive abscess there mm-hmm. from, 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 from the assault. And I was just like, fucking hell. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have to live with that for the rest of my life. See, that's something that like you'd hear, you'd hear that people have been abused as children, but we never really hear about what that actually means mm-hmm. down the line. Do you know what I mean? And I think it's huge credit yeah, that you're open about it because I think mm-hmm. men watching this and watch your other interviews and stuff like, do you know, it's probably the first time they've ever heard anybody articulate their experience, you know? And, and, and I'm only able to do that because of the support and treatment I received in England through mental health services because previously I wouldn't fucking tell anybody. I was ashamed mm. of it. You know, I remember like being in England and, and, and dating girls and, you know, fucking like literally there would be, you know, I'd be like, oh, I have to go to the toilet and I'd be in the toilet for ages trying to clean myself up. Mm. Mm. And I was so embarrassed to even go to the doctor and get help to kind of see, well, why is this happening? 
Um, and ultimately it was happening because I was a victim of sexual assault and rape as a child. And then you got to look at the psychological impact that has on you. Mm. Yeah, that's what I was going to get to. Yeah, a lot of it, a lot of trauma. Like I remember, mm-hmm. bless her, like we're still we're still mates, an ex girlfriend of mine, and I'd be in bed, <laughs> and then I'd be like, ah, like just literally like screaming, mm. and she'd be fucking shitting herself, like she'd be thinking I'm going to knock the head off her, mm. and like and she was really patient with me. You know, came to counselling sessions with me in London, that type of thing, and was very supportive. But the impact of the trauma that I experienced is still sometimes there in the background. You know, if someone touches my neck, I flinch. Yeah. You know, um, nightmares, flashbacks, you know, a certain smell mm. just triggers it. Post-traumatic stress. Point. Yeah. I was, I, was, um, I was going to Belfast to get me a AstraZeneca injection. I called it a soup run. Because... <laughs> Because I was getting the getting the vaccine off the off the Brits, but uh, um, have you got a British passport as well? Or something? Oh no, 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 <laughs> no. Um, but like I was on the train and I just started, like the smell hit me and I just started bawling my eyes out. And I started to kind of get a flash on the train. The thankfully there was no one around because it was COVID and all that. And uh, the train guard's like, you're all right? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm grand, thanks. You know, there's still that. Like, I'm able to kind of talk about it because the more I talk about it, the more I take back from him because that's power. Yeah. You know, the, you know then, then I become more confident in communicating what happens to me, how it happens to me, you know, you know the impact that has on friendships, relationships. What about... Um, um, what about your own view of sexuality? Did 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 it ever kind of hit your minds? Like, did it affect who you thought you were sexually? No, because I always liked boards. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. There was never any kind of, you know, Jesus, I wouldn't mind a bit of dick. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was very much kind of like, yeah, yeah. like, you know, very much, you know, you know, because that can that that is that does happen. Like it does happen. It does yes. happen to men. Um, but sometimes, like mm. when when you're a child, maybe younger children, anyway, like if something happens, they are affects them. Yeah, they think it's mm. all about mm. them. They yeah. they draw them on. I don't know that that's common. I as did well. blame myself. I did like for a long time. I thought did I do anything wrong? Did I bring this on myself? Was it me? But the reality is, it's not. You know, no. it's nothing to do with no. anything you've done. Because you're a child, and childs that children are blameless in those situations. Anyone is blameless in those in that situation if they're victims of sexual assault, you know, or rape, regardless if they're man, woman, or child. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I think, you know, for me, I didn't struggle with my sexuality. I didn't struggle with kind of, you know, what do I identify as? I think what I struggled with was intimacy. You know, mm-hmm. as I got older, because I didn't trust anybody because I was afraid I was terrified but you learned you learned in your childhood like that adults were bad news you know what I mean pretty much I didn't trust yeah. anyone like, even when I was in London mm-hmm. and lads were trying to be my mates and they were like yeah, my god um, um, and then they, they never called me Mick 
They refused to call it. They made up a nickname for Finners. And they're all these like real posh lads because I was playing rugby with the Bank of England. All these like fucking, like, lads, they're all loaded. Like, you know, yeah. oh my God, Finners, we're having a barbecue in the house. Um, do you want to come over? Bring some brewskis and all this shit. I'm like, what the fuck are you on about? Like, and I was just, I wouldn't let anybody in. I was yeah. just so distant with everyone. Yeah. And then if it, if people were trying to do me mates, I'd always, I'd put up a front. What's the motive behind it? Completely. Yeah. Um, I can relate to that 100%. Why do they want to be my mate? Yeah. Sure, I've got nothing to offer them. Yeah. And it's just... We never, we see, we couldn't see our own self-worth. That was the thing. So you're saying, what have I got to offer? Like, you, we, we don't see our own self-worth. We're so caught up in our own heads. Yeah. Criticizing ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, and shame then is an awful thing as well. I think Irish men carry a lot of shame. I you think know? as well, we have to understand like that we're human beings and we have an inherent value in that alone, you know. But when you're from backgrounds like yourself, that's taken from you, you know, and it takes a lot of work to get that back. Massively. And I was going, like, when I was in psychiatric care in England, I was fucking absconding, I was escaping from hospitals, going on the run. Like, there was, like, I was reported missing. There was a hashtag, find McFinn. And, like, I was just, like, proper, like, you know, uh, like, wanted, you know. And I remember I was, like, living feral in Hyde Park. Everyone was, like, looking for me. And I was sleeping rough and eating out of bins in the park, thinking no one will find me here. And then two cops found me and brought me back to the hospital. Do you know what I mean? But it took years of kind of therapy and treatment and getting the right support. How did you end up in the psychiatric hospitals in England? What happened there? Oh, I had a breakdown, didn't I? I ended up... <laughs> Losing it. <laughs> oh, fuck yeah, yeah. Like, proper snapped one night. And mm. I thought, fuck it, I'm going to end my life. That's it, I'm gone. So I thought I'd climb a bridge in London. And I went up and climbed the bridge and... Uh, it was one of the main transport links into into central London, so I shut down pretty much uh, oh, half oh. of that transport network uh, for the greater London area. Um, ended up in a four-hour standoff with the Metropolitan Police. They thought it was like some sort of, you know, initiative thing. They thought it was an attack, and then they didn't. And then it was like, Jesus, just and then cops be shouting, fucking jump, and like all that stuff. And then the negotiator was there, and... I just had a complete breakdown mm. and, I, and it was just because I couldn't handle the emotions couldn't handle the emotion could, didn't love myself mm. hated everything about me um, I just wanted to escape from the reality that I was living in I can, and then the fella that got me off the streets in Dublin uh, he gave me a job working in London that's how I ended up over there do you know uh, you were actually dealing with all that shit right without the substance or, or alcohol in your life, like, that's what we've, we mm. would have used and a lot of other people would have used substances and alcohol, do you know, to block all that. I would have drank a bit, nah. but I wouldn't have been like... There was no chronic addiction, like... No, yeah. I wouldn't need, I wouldn't have to wake up in the morning and have to do a bottle of yeah. wine just to get, get, to get yeah. the DTs away or anything mm. like that. Very much kind of... I was a bit like a, a really mad roller coaster. There were days where I was just so happy and hyper and everything's fine and nothing's gonna happen and you know praise jesus all this shit right <laughs> and the next time you know down there but fuck everybody fuck you fuck that fuck that fucking i look like proper just so angry yeah and uh then eventually when i got in the hospital they explained that actually make that makes perfect sense you've actually got bipolar um they diagnosed with that and they put me on loads of meds and mm-hmm. um, which didn't agree with me like at all because like some of the medication that i was on made me more chaotic mm. and more uh, 
Yeah, just mad. Can you tell us a, a, just briefly a little mm. bit about bipolar disorder? What what that actually is, the symptoms? Um, it affects everybody differently. Do you know what I mean? For me, it's where I get kind of periods of mania to the point where I feel like I'm bulletproof. You know, like I'm just like chest yeah. down, like yeah, that's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it's like proper. And then you're all right, boom, right down. It's almost like having the fear. You know, when you've had a rake of drink at the weekend or something, and you wake up on the Sunday morning, and you're like, geez, I can't remember ranting. Mm. Did I kiss your one in the office? Like, you know, you're proper panicking <laughs> if you did something. And it's a bit like that for, for me anyway. And it was just like, that's what they diagnosed you with in the hospital, the bipolar, PTSD, and emotionally unstable personality disorder. That's what they were the... The labels that they they gave me when I was in the uh, psychiatric care in in in, did, in in the UK. Did did the medication help you at all? Yeah. The, are you on medication today? I am. Yeah. 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 Um, I worked with somebody and he had bipolar disorder, but it was diagnosed, you know, when he was in his forties. Like, mm. but the medication changed his life. No, all of saved it. my life. Yeah, saved my life because it was able. I was able to then manage it. So then I ended up on a really high dose, and now I'm on quite a low dose, and I just manage that mm. daily. Um, and I still do a bit of talk and therapy. So once a month, I'll check in with the uh, with a psychiatrist. Very healthy and, thing to do. And just shoot, 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 shoot the breeze and talk to him about how I'm feeling and how this month went. You know, like this month's going great because you know. My place in Trinity College was uh, confirmed and I got an unconditional offer to study social work in September, so I'm kind of buzzing about that. Yeah, that's great. Um, so you should, Trinity and all Yeah, that. I know. Trinners for winners. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they say. Trinners for finners. Oh, I tell you. <laughs> Lynn Rowan went there. She was she uh, did. president, Lynn, yeah. Lynn was the SU president. Yeah. There. Lynn's a really good friend of mine. She's been very, very helpful yeah. and very vocal about the... Uh, the, um, the, 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 the child sexual stuff, uh, sexual abuse stuff in the John's Ambulance. She's been a very big advocate and holding that yeah. organisation to account. Yeah. Lynn was on the podcast also. She was. Herself, yeah. Did she come down? She came down yeah. to, to us, so to me, she had. No way! <laughs> yeah, yeah. She did. She's, you're quite similar in personality. She's so bubbly, you know, she's really strong. She knows exactly what she she's here for, you know, and, and you've so much, like, you look like you've so much confidence. For me to not to know you and see how confident you are, and outgoing and, you know, just there's yeah. a good vibe off you. And then to hear yours, I actually was going to, I, I had to keep in the tears there with a good I, know, uh, I could, uh, like I did, yeah. you know, because it, 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 it was, it was, I don't know what to say, really. But, um, it's just a, it's a very emotional story, like, but you're such a, you've got a great energy yeah. about you. Thanks. Um, I think for me, the reason that I'm, I wouldn't say stale, but the reason I am the way I am is because if I was any other way, that fucker won. Mm. So if I can go on and live a life that's fulfilled, where I can try and make a little bit of a difference in life, where I can try and make a difference in the community that I live in, where I can look at the child safeguarding issues within the John's Ambulance, get my social work qualification, maybe one day even get married, yeah. I fucking won. Mm. do you know what I mean and that's the way yeah. I look at it and it's and it took a long time for me to kind of really get to that point because a lot of the time I blamed everybody me ma me da 
brothers, my sister, like everyone was getting brined except they're all getting about barrels. I was like, yeah, fuck the lorries. <laughs> <laughs> like I was like, but it was me. Oh. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't. Um, there was no acceptance. No, no. none. Yeah. Like it was, it was everyone's fault, but mine. Yeah. But the reality was, it was fucking to some extent, mm. unless I took personal responsibility mm. for my own mental health, I would not be where I am today. I'd still be in a psyche and I locked away. Yeah, because the victim, that victim mentality will always keep you in the gutter mm. and oh, it's stop. very disempowering. Mm. And when you say, yeah, I was let down by certain people in my life, I was, you know, I did have a hard time, I did have a rough, but you know what, I'm, I'm an adult today and mm. I can change it. That's very empowering and you can say, no, fuck him, I'm going to do this, yeah. that and the other. Mm. And it's not, you will have won if you do all these things, you are winning right now. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And you have one, and you're just going to, you know, add to the victory and compound his defeat as you go and pick up all these accolades and these achievements and stuff. You know, mm. tell us a little bit about how you ended up being an advisor to the Royal Psychiatrists in England. <laughs> it's a bit of a mad one, isn't it? <laughs> so I was in and out of psych hospitals, like proper, like Scotland, and like I was just like. I was getting restrained all the time. I was getting an like, IM, which is an intramuscular injection to the arse. Because I was just fucking didn't want to take me meds, didn't want to talk about how I felt. Basically not taking personal responsibility. And then one day I did, and I was working as a mental health peer support worker in a psych unit. So using my lived experience to encourage. Um, it's almost like NA, but in a mental health hospital. Does yeah. that make sense? Where's yeah. that peer-to-peer support? You know yeah. what I mean? It's like a therapeutic community. Completely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you're but you're there, like you know, in some hospitals I've worked in, and people are so supportive of peer support workers because the patients engage in the treatment plans, and they do then end up not getting readmitted to hospital because they're able to manage their mental health in the community, which is so much better for them. Mm. But then there's other hospitals I've worked in and some of the staff are like, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, who let that fucking lunatic in here? <laughs> Lunatics taking over the asylum. And it's like, and they're like, literally. 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 And I'm like, my favourite window flavour is lime. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, but like, just the way, like, it's just the way they were. It was like so, so much stigma and tokenism surrounding the raw. And then I saw in London that they were, there was an advertisement for a national advisor for the Mental Health Safety Improvement Program at the <laughs> Royal College of Psychiatry's National Collaborating Centre for Mental Health. And I thought, fuck it up, put an application. There's a lot of nationals in that, wasn't it? Come here, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, I just put an application in and thought nothing of it. Mm. And then about a month later, I forgot about it. And a month later, I got an email going uh, look we know we noticed that you're working in a psych- psychiatric hospital in the north of Ireland um, but the interview's in London but if you want we can do it over Skype or Zoom or whatever it was and I was like nah fuck that. in my head I was like nah I'm, I'm going to London <laughs> so I flew over spent the weekend in London I stayed with a mate of mine actually did the interview taught nothing of it and then I was like nah I didn't get that no way because I was so intimidated walking into this building you know, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and I was just like, McFinnigan from the flats, do you know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah. it was very much, imposter syndrome was kicking yeah, in, and yeah, I was I like, imagine. not thinking I was wordy and all this, and then I got the role. I got an email going, congratulations, we'd like to offer you the role, which then resulted in me then visiting and meeting with like, the chief execs, directors of nursing, medical directors of different mental health hospitals across England. 
where I was going into these buildings and given my experience, have you thought about doing it like this? Have you thought about maybe doing that? You know, and, and really kind of helping the hospital understand, the clinicians to understand the importance of lived experience and how it can help people on that journey. Do you know when you started out in that role, was all the psychiatrists and clinicians on board or was there a bit of... So they, they were paying me, weren't they? Like yeah. they were the, like the Royal College of Psychiatrists are the psychiatrists. Like you, yeah. every, you know, if you're a psychiatrist, you have to practice they're, they're in the, the governing UK. body. Like they're the governing body. Like they're like FIFA. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Who better? Yeah. Who better to tell them how patients Stop. feel that and what they want? Who better than yeah. the next patient? That's the way I look at it. And I was there, and it was just a real. But then, like again, I was like, I was looking at how they were dressing, and they were like, and I was only like in a short and. No tweed jackets with elbow patches. Yeah, yeah, they were. But then I went, I went down. Me first meeting, we spent fucking two hundred quid in a fucking tweed jacket <laughs> and another eighty quid on a on a on a notepad from Smithsons on Bond Street. Oh and, god! And this thing, like, this is one of the, like really expensive notepad. And I'm there, like in these meetings, sitting there looking all professional. I had no fucking clue half the time, <laughs> shitting myself. And I was like, ah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Only be scribbling in the notepad, pretending to take notes. When I was first started going to these meetings, because I was terrified to open my mouth, and then through kind of the the training and the acceptance of my colleagues within the Royal College of Psychiatrists, I began to get that familiarity that when I was around the table, that I could open my mouth, that yeah. I could interject yeah. and go, actually, do you know what? I disagree with that point, and this is why. Or I agree with that, and I think this is what we should do to make a dif- to make that yeah. difference, and. It was just so empowering. And then that's when, probably for the first time, that I kind of realized my worth. Mm. Yeah. Know your worth. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I tell everyone, like, there's only one of you. You're priceless. Mm-hmm. And people, a lot of people don't understand or realize that. They think, oh, I've nothing to offer. Mm. And I'm like, come here, listen, if a fat fella from, from Crumlin can go over and tell the Brits how to look after them. <laughs> like, I know. You know, how to look after themselves and stuff like that, then, then why can't... There's no there's no, no, no stopping anybody. Mm-hmm. But you know what you did as well? That a lot of That's people mad. find hard... What you did, what a lot of people might find hard to do is when an opportunity arises, take it. Mm. It's a risky thing to do. You're going out of your comfort zone... But that's where you get the results. Yeah. But sometimes it takes a lot of balls to do that as well. Like I remember getting the job, going back into my full-time job, telling me manager, who's like a clinical nurse manager, real kind of high up in the NHS in the north, I'm about to get a job as a national advisor. <laughs> and she looked at me and she was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Play, oh, she, <laughs> she, thought was she, thought, she thought it was She yeah. genuinely <laughs> thought it was being grandiose. She thought... Check and see if he took his meds today. Like, <laughs> like I was like proper, like just that, that's the way it was. You know what I mean? I was just kind of I couldn't believe it. You know, genuine. I was I was kind of riding this high where I was walking around where I was proud to be the expert yeah. by experience because there wasn't any tokenism mm. in the role that I was doing in London. It was amazing because yeah. when I was talking, when I'd open my mouth. You'd have like the national clinical director for the NHS for mental health would be looking at me the same way you two yeah. lads are looking at me now. Mm. And and literally, wow. Yeah. And I was just like, Jesus. And then that, that's where I started to become more aspirational. Then I wanted not just to be the expert by experience. I wanted to be the expert. And then that's why I went and applied to do the access course in Trinity College. 
because I wanted that bit of paper to underpin my knowledge, my skills, and my mm. practice. Mm. So I wasn't just a mad lad. Do yeah. you know what I mean? I was, I was the academic then. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. I, and, I, and that's my, my motivating factor to, to pursue that. I was saying to you on the phone the other day as well, like that's a kind of a similar motivation with myself, you know, like yourself and I was on the Tommy Tiernan show and all went well and all that. But um, for a long time after, for, for a good few months afterwards, um, anytime I was being pres- described in the media, it was like ex-heroin user or James Leno, do you know what I mean? So it was like, do you know why I'd get this PhD now? It would be like criminologist James Leno, do you know what I mean? Or Deadly Dr. Woman. James, mm-hmm. trying to move away. From, yeah, the lived experience is great and we value it and, and all that. But we're much more and we, we, we can have this lived experience. We can also have great achievements and accolades and letters after our names like anybody else too. But I think you breaking that cycle and kind of, you know, sticking your head up. You know, and, and going, well, I'm more than that. Yeah. That makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. Because they're like, because then they then start getting the imposter syndrome. Because you've got the same qualif- qualifications as them, but you've lived it as well. Mm-hmm. And that is a powerful, uh, probably a powerful kind of visual of like the wheel of change. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like you're a walk and talk and wheel of change because you went through that kind of, mm-hmm. you know, pre-contemplate, contemplate. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And you and, and look at you now, and, and it's the same for myself. Yeah, like I, yeah. I'm, you know, we do make people feel uncomfortable because they don't. A lot of the time, it's not typical. Like we no. know what the book exactly says through mm. feeling, you know, and through experience, you know, and we can really relate to anybody that has been in our position. Of, as of previous, you know, yeah. the ex, uh, were ex addicts, yeah. people that are still addicted, mental health issues, yeah. you know, wanting to commit suicide mm. constantly. I know how that feels. I, James knows how it feels. You know, we can really relate. But the ba- best part of it is when you know the, uh, the, the theory of it and you know the lived experience of it, there's a connection mm. between people. And there's a relationship between people that are going through it now and the, the person that has lived it. Yeah. That's where the change and really, really comes, in my opinion. That's when people say, no, oh, I can do this. Yeah. You know, and that's why there's such a need for you as your role, Thank you know, you. and James and myself. Yeah. That's why there's such a need, you know, for us to really, really. And for years, I've always wanted to... To do something else, you know, I was always looking for what I was supposed to do, you know. But now, what we're doing now, it feels like I'm actually doing exactly what I was supposed to do. Yeah. I share my lived experience and help others that are coming up behind us, you know. And I think that's critical in, in other people getting recovery and, and, and getting well from mental health issues and stuff. You know? Yeah, massively. I think, like, you know, when you're that. When, when, when you've used the lived experience, I like using the word expert by lived experience because, mm. because it really validates and reinforces what you're trying to do because no one can take that away from you. Yeah. Cause it's actually an academic term, which is quite hilarious. Yeah, but you are, you're an expert by lived experience. You're using your lived experience to make a real and lasting difference in someone's life. Going, well, I've done this and this is what's happened and it didn't turn out great for me. Mm. And I'm only sharing this, which I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just giving you the options. Mm. You know, only you can make those decisions for yourself. And yeah. that's what it's about. It's kind of getting someone to almost reflect 
on the choices before they make mm. those decisions yeah. that ultimately maybe send them down a difficult path. Mm. You know? You're going to make an unbelievable social worker. Like, I tell you, no, you're just go- yeah. you're going to add so much to that classroom and that course and that campus in general. Yeah. You know, and they're, they're they're lucky to have you. Um, and I know yeah. you didn't get in there easy. You knew far hard for it. Oh, the, the yeah, like yeah. shitting the like you know yeah. when it was. Um, I remember um, when. I was on campus and I got the news from Tusla. I got the letter off them and everything about the, 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 the findings. And I went, I saw my dad and I said, look, I thought you were living in London. I says, no, I'm studying in Trinity. Oh, here we go. Here we go. How much do you need? Like, literally, he thought I was like, he thought I was like hitting them up for a loan or something or trying to rip them off or whatever. And I said, no, no, I'm genuinely studying there. And he goes, we'll see about that, won't we? And no joke, he rang me one day. He goes, Roy, where are you? I'm here. <laughs> he was like, I'm in, I'm in a lecture. Don't care, come on. So I left the lecture, went down. He was in the, he was in the front square. And he was like, oh, that was fucking true. Roy, come on, show us around. So I take him around the campus and I'm showing him everything. And he's looking around. He's like, and I bring him into this building. It's called the museum building. It's very ornate and it's beautiful. And it's... Yeah, it's a stunning building. It's one of my favourite buildings on the campus. And he's looking up and he's like, fucking hell. I'm not paying for this. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like, like... And I was like, don't worry about it, it's grand. And then like... And then like, <laughs> that relationship started to kind of... Repair. Together, yeah. Because of the Tussle report. And he was mm-hmm. devastated. He was so apologetic about, you know what happened and, and all that stuff oh. and we'd meet up and have the crack and um, I remember he was telling the lads in the Black Forge in Crumlin oh yeah he's trying to be a doctor yeah, yeah. <laughs> doctor <laughs> my son Trinity College yeah oh, he's proud <laughs> like proper like and um, I was just buzzing like you know like uh, but then I didn't like the fact that some old lads actually thought he was serious and they were coming up to me showing me their fucking rash that is <laughs> And it was just fucking, it was mad, like, and then, I'll actually show you a picture, like, yeah, I got a picture of us on, um, on the campus, and he's like, come on, get a picture with me, will you, because they won't believe you, and there we are, don't know whether you can see that. That's brilliant, yeah. Like, on the front square in Trinity College, and he's like, and he's shouting at the security fella who took it. He's like, here, Specky, take that picture. <laughs> <laughs> and your man there, the security guy's like... <laughs> like, and, I, and he was coming around showing it to everyone. And then, you know, oh. I was really happy that I got to have that time with him. But he passed away in August. Just Shit. gone. Ah, fuck it. Yeah. I was fucking devastated. Well, at least you, you know what? At least but it was on good I'll terms. i tell you what, you. the fact that I was able to make amends with him and... Mm. Like, like I took him to the pavilion in in in, in the college, the college bar. It's all like, oh my god, pint of high now. Who ordered the creamer? You know, like the way that's like, I might be there, like, dad, like, just give me a focal point. <laughs> I'm sitting there drinking, and he, he just loved it. You know, he was just, yeah, he was proud of me. You know, and eventually like, because of again because of that Tussler report, you know, that really enabled him to put himself in a situation where he was vulnerable and say sorry mm. and to make that amends. 
And like I was just totally fucking blown away by it, you know. Was yeah. the Tushler report the validation of everything you had said? Massively, yeah, yeah. So he read it and he just couldn't believe it. Like, and he, he broke down crying. Mm, I can imagine. So, so sorry. I'm so sorry. Kept saying sorry about a million times. Mm. I was like, if you say sorry, I'm going to walk away. I was I'm sorry. It's like, right, fuck off. <laughs> I'll go back. Do you want a point? And like, yeah. And then like, but it enabled us then to have that. Um, Relationship. I got my dad back. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. I kind of almost yeah. revered to being a fucking uh, 10 year old kid. You know. Sitting next to him. He's there like holding my hand and he's like, right. What are we going to do next week? Tell you what, take it into town. We got the pub. We got there's a pub there, and all me mates, the barman, and look after you. And he was like proper. And then he just yeah, he was so supportive. You know, go and he'd be like checking up me on. Did you do your assignments? He was probably never in Trinity in his life. Never even through the front. And he said yeah. that to me. It's the first time I've been in this college. Yeah, so I brought when I got when I graduated. My master's there last February. It was just before COVID. It was in oh, person. You know, congratulations. But I brought me dad and. Uh, it was very weird, do you know what I mean? Because it's in Latin and there were robes and all these things. Like, it was just to, and my nephew as well. So I just went to show my nephew as well, like, that this is there for you too, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. not just posh kids do this, you know, it's, it has to be accessible for everybody. And there's, there might be a perception of people like us in the backgrounds we're from, the neighborhoods we're from, that we're maybe less intelligent than others, but we're not. We just have more obstacles and we, we're able to achieve, you know, because we either got a lucky break or we had services to help us, but yeah. there's loads of people with the same smarts as us that mm. may never get the achievements that we get because they just have obstacles. They don't get the breaks or they maybe don't get the help along the way. But there's loads of intelligence in Dolphins Barn and in Ochnahini and in Chico and all these places, you know? Unbelievable intelligence. I am... Um, and if only they got the opportunity to realise their potential. Because mm. loads of them have potential. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Which is probably why some of them end up kind of going down that criminality route. Mm. And why some of them become actually quite successful criminals. Yeah. Because they have that intelligence mm. to make the decisions that they need to make at the right time to be lucrative. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if they put their... If they put or manage to harness that in a different way mm. they could be doctors yeah. they could be scientists accountants business leaders in um, the moment I was doing my bachelor's degree we learned this word called meritocracy IQ plus effort equals merit so mm. the government liked to expose the idea that we live in a meritocratic society that if no matter who you are in Ireland if you're smart enough and if you work hard enough you will achieve that's not, that's not, that's only relevant if everybody starts at the same spot. Mm. But you could have Mary from Dolphins Barn, the hardest working young one in Ireland, the most intelligent young one in Ireland. But all that work ethic and intelligence goes into making sure the siblings are safe, mm. that the food is on the table, that the fucking, there's a roof over the head. Mm. And that's where the intelligence and the energy goes. If all them things was looked after... Guarantee I'm Mary's going to Trinity. 100%. She'll never yeah. get there because no, it's all the yeah. And yeah. it's the same. Like I, I, I would have watched people that I did the access course with. And there was so much other stuff that, that was in the way. You know, there was lads that were single parents. There were people that had other issues like money, rent, food. And they were more stressed about getting that sort than looking after assignments and stuff like that. Um, know. You know, and like, the reality is, I think there was a, there was a, there was a HEA, HEI, is it? The, uh, Higher the, Education Authority? Yeah, they did. There was a survey done. I think something like 4% of students that are in higher education come from socioeconomically deprived areas. 4%. 4%, yeah. 
A lot, a lot of, and, and a lot of them would be probably mature students as well. There'd be lots, there'd be lots yeah. of exciting recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd be on a Susie grant. Yeah. They'd be on maybe a disability allowance. They'd be on the HAP. Mm-hmm. So they have, like, if you, if you, like, if you're a student and you're on disability allowance and you're getting the HAP, you're a rich student. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you're loaded walking at the campus making a rain. Yeah. But like, most people don't get those opportunities or have the, that available to them. You know mm. what I mean? And I think there should be something done where... It should be the next step. I, absolutely. Yeah. I think it, it should, should be, be done where step. colleges have to be proactive in in, mm. in allowing and, and giving opportunities where, mm. all right, we'll save the kid or the person who wants to study doesn't have the money. Mm. That's okay. Yeah, there was yeah, a time yeah. in this country where toward level, toward level education was free. You know, that it was an automatic right. Yeah, for anybody if they wanted to go away you go mm. but you know the, yeah. you talk about something there you know like if you're from a disadvantaged background you can get funding and, and grants mm. and stuff like that but still does it mean that people from our areas go to college you know what I mean and Linwen talks a lot about that how know? many hoops do you have to jump through to get a bit of funding or I, a grant I know like the application mm. forms are done in a way I know where you have to write a supporting statement then you have to get references then you have to be suitable and the Susie system then is nightmare isn't it that's near enough impossible like when I came out of prison and I had to complete a Susie grant Mm. you know and and this is somebody I never even felt out an application in my life Mm. this was probably the first one I ever felt out I actually nearly stopped the whole process of wanting to go to college because of this application it just took so much out of me because they kept coming back to me, asking me for more information and more information. And I was only out of prison and I didn't know what else to give them because, and I didn't know whether it would have been a good idea to clarify that I was been in prison for the last nearly three years. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I didn't know, you know, it's, it's really difficult, difficult process. Yeah. Like I remember um, filling out the Susie and they were like, can you send us your bank account details? And I was like, for what? <laughs> to see if you're like wealthy or see if you're hiding cash. And I was like, grand. And they were asking me, like, a mate of mine who I gave 50 euro to once, on, like, on a night out or something, put it back into my account. And I'm like, and, and what's this? Could you could you explain this transaction? Because, yeah, no. And I'm like, it's just, oh, here, come on. Yeah. I, think, I don't think they mean it or do it on purpose. No. Well, it's just set up for traditional students, like, young fella, 17, does his leaving something, goes into college. It's set up for him. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But any deviation from the norm... Like, I was a mature student, you know, yeah. I'd stayed in my mother's house for one of the previous five years, so I wasn't assessed as an independent adult, so I was assessed on the household income, which means I wasn't getting funded from Susie. Jesus. I had the big borrow and steal, I was getting money off charities and car care, mm. and, mm. like, when you, it's already imposter syndrome in UCC, you know, mm. and then the assignments are not fucking easy either, no. and then you have the added pressure of the fees office or threatening to cut you from the library if you don't pay your fees in time, and then you're trying to get it from charities and begging. We call us bluff, like, do it. <laughs> do it. <laughs> you don't want to do that because you know what you're just you're just under so much pressure. Oh, you know? stop! It's horrible. It is horrible. No. Like I, you know, I, I struggle. I, I didn't get Susie, you know, in my, in my second like when I did the access course, and then I ended up doing a year of philosophy. I didn't get the Susie. Like they were like, uh, well, you know, you need to prove yeah. that you don't have X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And they were like, have you got copies of, uh, or can you prove that your bank accounts in the UK are closed? And I was like, we're in the middle of a bleeding global pandemic. Why don't I just yeah. jump over and? Say, mm-hmm. here, can you stamp this form for me? Because yeah. yeah. 
because the, the education authority thinks I'm trying to pull a fast one. Mm-hmm. I know. There's easier ways to make yeah. money, lads. I know. Yeah. But look, what's the what's the future hold for you? Where do you see yourself in five years' time? Hopefully, with with a degree. I'll have a degree in social work in five years' time, and I'd hopefully either be doing a master's or a PhD by that stage. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Excellent. Excellent. Um, because I do want to kind of look at possibly changing or challenging how we deal with retrospective disclosures for adults mm. you know um, child protection as a whole looking at how we can kind of support the victims because it's very much heavily in favour of the perpetrator mm. you know if you're the adult complainant I hate that fucking word adult complainant you know when we just say person yeah. or victim or you know adult complainant sounds quite yeah. and it's, it's, it's like you're a thorn but yeah, yeah, you're torn on the side mm-hmm. and you're being uttered. And if you're being uttered, then you're kind of almost being looked down on. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're a human being. Yeah. You shouldn't be treated any differently because of the trauma that you experienced as a child going into a system where you're looking for that support now at a later stage and they're not really that interested in you. You know, so I'd like to look at kind of how we change that. Because I weighed, well, I remember the referral from the HSC was went in in 2011 but no one contacted me until 2018 yeah do you know what I mean and not, not and when I first reported it was back in the, the late 90s how did it take so long waiting lists gets lost um, still trying to figure that out at the moment actually I'm wrecking everyone's head probably an old pinch of corruption as well maybe people, a little people, bit of that who knows um, yeah. people be covering up for people as well like that's possibly possibly there is that like for me what I wouldn't like to happen is for someone that experienced the same stuff that I went through and then not to be believed mm. and not to be supported and to be put in a situation where they're marginalised even further and mm. I hate when people that are marginalised already are marginalised by yeah. the no. By the organisations that were set up to protect them, to safeguard them, to ensure that their immediate needs are being met. Absolutely hate that. And I think that needs to change. Mm. You know, we need to be more accessible. We need to be listening to the victims. And and, and, and quite frankly, you know, there should be nothing about us without us. Mm. You know, the victims should be in there shaping service delivery. Mm. looking at what does it look like how would you feel about this situation you know because it's it's, it's a horrible situation to be in you're going into mm. a room you're being sat down opposite two social workers and you're pouring your heart out to them Drop. and then they're like right there's a couple of free phone numbers you can ring if you're mm. feeling distressed can you please leave <laughs> like, and there's me like nearly bawling my eyes out yeah. do you, know you, you, you could do actually and I could, I could see you doing it students union trinity shannon Senator, mm-hmm. like Lynn Wen, and carry her advocacy in because she carry her advocacy mm-hmm. in through there. Mm-hmm. And now she gets bills passed in there that yeah. you've never come across around yeah. for drug users, for people with convictions that nobody in probably most of the other centres don't give a shit about. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But when you have working class people in there, you'll, do you know what I mean? I think that. Maybe watch this debate. Like, like yeah. Politics never really kind of. Yeah. interested me but, but because, I am passionate about yeah. being an advocate and to the yeah. point where you know I can get the evidence base yeah. do the research and go well actually this is what we should be doing yeah. you're, you're already the advocate mm. all you need to do is just, just get a position. bigger platform no? that's it yeah. the, the advocacy is there it's yeah. just, just pushing it 
just go that way. Yeah. Do you know? There's that's the plan, lads. That yeah. is the plan. You know. Watch the space. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, come here. You know, I was I was chatting with this, with, with the psychiatrist there. What was it, a few months ago? And he said if a nuclear bomb went off, it could be you and the cockroaches left. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because he, he, yeah, because he was just joking about the fact that like. You know, I've been like I've, I've experienced what I've experienced, and I'm still Did proactive, want. still going, Did still yeah. you know wrecking everyone's heads. Like I'd be ringing politicians all the time, dropping them emails. Can I have the minutes of that meeting? Can I have the minutes of that meeting? Remember when we spoke about that last time? Did you do that? Can you show me a copy of the letter you sent out? Mm-hmm. Then, if that's the case, you know, and it's about being holding them accountable because ultimately they are elected representatives. Yeah, and I think a lot of when people don't hold them to account enough. Because if they did, I think more stuff would get done. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And I think, do you know if people are watching this podcast and they can relate with you, would it be okay if I could, if they could contact you maybe? Yeah, if, yeah I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter, Mick Finnegan. Yeah. Right, so thanks a million for coming down to meet us, Mick. Lads, thanks very much. It's, a, it's been a pleasure. No, it was a, it was a pleasure for us too. It was an honour for it to come down. Um, as I said, like a lot of the guests will be able to identify with your experiences and um, a lot of the guests will have laughed and cried watching this. Um, it was one of the best podcasts we've done, I think. Um, and I'm not going to waffle on because I know I have to get you on the last train home. Yeah, yeah but, <laughs> but what I will say to anyone that is listening, yeah, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've experienced, life does get better. Because yeah. ultimately, it's not where you start that matters, it's where you finish that counts. Exactly. And you have the potential to do and achieve great things. Yeah, well said. And a good note to finish on. Thanks, Mick. Thanks, lads. Thanks, Mick. Thanks, Thank Timmy. You. Thanks, everyone. Thank Thanks, Rowan. And uh, we'll see everybody again next week. See you later, Doc. <coughs> Bye-bye. Hi everybody, thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe and don't forget to head over to the Patreon if you'd like to help us. Thanks again. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com Even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.